Amen, amen. You may be seated again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, And here at Mercy Fellowship, we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so it's a joy to see you guys here this morning, gathered here in person uh, or with us online. And so today um, we are going to continue our series in the book of Ecclesiastes that we've called Vapor. Finding meaning under the sun. And so if you don't have one of our discipleship guides, you can grab one of those out in the foyer uh, and a great way to know where we're going to be at today. Uh, Today we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to go through the entire uh, chapter today. And as you turn your Bibles there, I hope you have them with you. As you turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 4, I want to know, like, how are you doing? Like, 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 as you come in this morning... If you take a breath and you think for a moment, how am I really doing? How close are you in some way, shape, or form to a breaking point? To where the pressure of this world, the pressure of relationships, the pressure of our culture, the pressure of of what's going on in our country and our world, the pressure of what's going on with your own physical health, the pressure uh, of whatever relational challenges you may have. How close are you to a breaking point? And the reason I ask is, is, and maybe you're not, maybe you're doing well, and that's awesome, and and I'm glad that you're here. But I think what happens, and, and why we're looking at a book like Ecclesiastes, is we recognize that under the sun, which we've said is shorthand for in the world apart from God, There's going to be things that cause us great pressure, great distress, great challenges. And there's something in us that just says, yeah, I'm going to soldier up. I'm 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 going to muscle up. I'm going to make it. Or you walk around a little high strung and you're just wondering, what's it going to be that sets me off today? And I've I've seen this. I, I know this. Right? Good luck posting an opinion on social media. Right? You know, just, you know, hey, you know, hey, candy corn, terrible. Right? Oh, no, candy corn is the best. How dare you? Right? No, it's terrible. Okay? It's bad. If you like candy corn, I don't know what to do with you because there's so many other candies that aren't named after a vegetable. Okay. Had nothing to do with the notes. Guys, we said in the last couple of weeks when we've talked about seasons that you don't need to pretend that it's springtime or summer if you're in a winter. And so as we get to Ecclesiastes chapter four, and we've gone through this journey of the first few chapters, if you've been with us, you've known that Solomon has been going through these experiments to try to find meaning uh, under the sun. And so he's pursued pleasure, he's pursued knowledge, work, accomplishments, all these things, and he's found them lacking. And in the last couple weeks, as we've looked at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we said, hey, if Solomon is in a lab in his basement where it's dark, he's finally started to pull back the curtains, and light has started to shine into these uh, uh, experiments, and the light that has shined in them is the light of the Lord, is that there is one who is in heaven, who's above the sun. And we said last week, as we talk about something like injustice, or we talk about suffering, that even when light comes into a basement and it illuminates, and you can, you can see it a lot better, you're probably not going to trip, you know, but there's still dark corners. 
And so let's just be really realistic. And again, that's part of why we're in Ecclesiastes uh, for this series, because it asks realistic questions. Let's be realistic that if we are in a basement world, that there's gonna be shadows and there's gonna be darkness that's gonna seek to trip us up. And how we respond to injustice and to suffering sometimes is to feel alone and isolated. And when you begin to be cut off from other people, and, and Lord willing, maybe that hasn't been your experience the last few months, but certainly we all went through a season last year where everyone was cut off, everyone was isolated, and our mental health was awesome, right? Nobody was freaking out? No, right? As much as we had a financial crisis, as much as we had a, a public health crisis, we have a mental health crisis. And so when we're cut off from each other, stress begins to accumulate and we just get closer and closer to that breaking point where you're like, I don't know what I'm going to say the next time somebody does something. Like a couple weeks ago, my wife got yelled at in a parking lot at Target by somebody she doesn't even know just for being there outside. Okay? Like this is a, like, we ain't Disneyland anymore, guys. So as you come to Ecclesiastes 4, we're going to see why are we at this breaking point? How do we respond, like in kind of a, a worldly way, if you will, or apart from God? How does that work for us? Where are we going to find hope? And, 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 and we're going to end today, even though we're going to go through, through some shadows, we're going to end today with some light and some victory, okay? So stick with me. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I've broken this up into four sections. We're going to start with verses 1 through 3. It says this. This is Solomon the preacher preaching a sermon to a people. And he says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who's not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And so as he's preaching this sermon, this is a shadow text right here, right? This is not light illuminating, this is darkness. And he says, hey, we do not live in a perfect world where there's perfect relationships and perfect justice, do we? And, and the Bible's description of that, and, and whether you're a Christian or not, the Bible has a concept of why there's brokenness in the world. And it's the word sin. That while God made everything good, sin has entered the world through humanity's rejection of God. Let's establish a kingdom under the sun, apart from the king of heaven. And that sin that has entered the world has real consequences. It has real consequences in our hearts. It has real consequences in our lives. It has real consequences in our communities and, and, and in, in this world. And the biggest thing that sin does, the most tangible effect of it, is separation. Theologically, it separates us from a holy, perfect God because we're now stained with sin, either done to us or, or that we've committed it separates us from our sense of self in the concept of, of shame, right? Sometimes you, you know you done screwed up and you just, man, I, I don't want to be around anyone. Or someone's harmed you. I don't want to go there again. I don't want to be in that relationship anymore. I don't want to be around those people anymore, right? It separates. And so it can separate us from each other. 
and where sin causes pain and suffering, oppression and loneliness in this world. It takes a lot of different forms, but I, I believe that one of the most tangible fruits of sin, if you will, is separation. And so, and it's separation fr from life. It's separation from each other, from God. And so, um, guys, this should be very observable to us if we're looking at a world that is under the sun, apart from God. Uh, and what can easily be forgotten is we think about the world uh, uh, under the sun, apart from God, and we just start to forget. And these verses are about a guy who's seen the injustice in the world, seen the suffering in the world, and seen the darkness and the shadows under the sun, that he has forgotten that there is one above the sun. There's one who's made the sun. That there is a big God. And so weekly we are reminded of great injustices happening in the world. There's a spiritual separation and oppression in it, and it sinks into our hearts and our souls like storm clouds that just kind of kind of settle in, and, and now you're, you're in it. And, and because of the sin that we've done, sin committed to us, and, and the big idea is that separation from sin causes an unholy world where oppression and depression reign over us. Like I said, that fog that just kind of settles in and it creates isolation in our lives. And so when pain happens, when we're hurt, or when we, when we start to connect with maybe a little empathy, if maybe again, you're not suffering, but there's suffering uh, around you and it, it starts to, to, to sink in, it creates isolation in our lives and we're moved to sadness and tears. And it says, when you're alone, when you're isolated, you're cut off from other people, you, you feel not only am I suffering and am I sad, there's just no one to comfort me. Where is my help gonna come from? Where is my comfort going to come from? And when we're alone, no one's there to comfort us. We're weak, and that which seeks to oppress us, and you can, you can fill in the blank on that. Maybe the oppression that you're facing is addiction. Maybe the oppression you're facing is relationships that are marred by sin. Maybe the oppression you're facing is economic. Maybe the, the oppression you're facing um, is, is the cells in your body are no longer functioning the way they should and there's just this sickness that won't go away. Maybe the suffering and the oppression that you're dealing with is, is the culture around us and the things that are happening in the world. And so we become aware of pain and we start to weep with and for others. And then there's times that we experience oppression so deeply that, that it leads us and I'm like, hey, I'm beyond the breaking point now. I'm no longer in a place where I can hold it together. I am broken. And this is when like, right, our, our anger, our bitterness, our frustration just starts to ooze out of us. Right, you know, like, 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 like just like a barrel of toxic waste from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? It just starts to, to ooze out. That was a very particular reference, okay? And so what happens is we see the darkness and we begin to believe that we're truly alone and it leads us, it says here, to these chilling and disturbing conclusions. And he says, I'd, I'd be better off if I wasn't living. He says as well, I wish I was, like, kind of, he's articulating this idea, I wish I was never born. And the reason for his despair is not just because there's oppression, not just because he's suffering, 
But it says here um, in verse uh, number one right there, on the side of the oppressors, there was power. The oppression is so strong. Like, I recognize how weak I am. Right? Somebody says, you're fired. They have the power. You don't. And you feel it. Right? A law gets passed. A mandate gets passed. You're like, powerless. In a relationship, somebody says, we're done. Powerless. Isolation. I mean, right? This, this happens to us. It's in middle school, right? You write out that note to that girl you think is cute. You pass that note out. You know, it has a little box check, yes, no. What does that box come checked with? Well, for Chris Rich, it was no, okay? Maybe for you, it was yes. Congratulations, you peaked in middle school, right? You know, that's great. Or maybe, you've just, maybe you're just crushing it. That's awesome. Right, but there's the power. You open the envelope. Am I going to be accepted or am I going to be rejected? There's power. And when we feel oppression, we feel powerless. And when, and when the power's on the side of the oppressors so much, it leads us to places of despair. He's like, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? And, and his conclusion here is, is, it'd be better off, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living are still alive. Man, Carl, he's gone. Whew, glad he didn't see this. Be way better not have to deal with this. Right, we come to that conclusion of like, why would I bring a child into this world? I don't want to pretend that we're immune to this. We all live here in the Seattle area. If you didn't know, out of 33 major metro areas, the Seattle area rates number two on suicide. It's because not just the dark clouds of gray from uh, you know, the Puget Sound have rolled in and settled in, but there's clouds of depression and oppression that reigns when you have a worldview that says this is all there is. There is no God in heaven. This is all you got. There's a spiritual darkness that happens and it leads to this place of depression and so we have addiction through the roof. We have hopelessness reigning over. We begin to believe it'd be better to be gone than to continue in this broken world because when pain leads to hopelessness, depression falls into despair. Guys, this, this might be the saddest point in all of Ecclesiastes. Because he's like, man, I know there's some sun there, but these shadows, I feel like I'm stuck in the shadow place. Where is the power? Because I feel powerless. And I want to be clear. Sorrow's not always wrong. Lament is okay. Grief has to be processed. But we also need hope. Because if we begin to believe this lie that all the power is on the side of the oppressors, it will lead you to a place of despair. And we'll talk about those worldly responses, but because, because this is so dark, I wanna give us some good news before we even go on because otherwise I think if we just keep going through a, a dark journey, it just gets darker and dark, like you, we need to have light along the journey even in the midst of darkness. And so um, where do we find hope at? Solomon's dad was David, a king, and he wrote a whole bunch of songs. 
And some of them made it into the Bible called Psalms. And in Psalm chapter 9, this song that David wrote, like Solomon's dad, he's like, when there's oppression, when you're feeling powerless, when you're worried about uh, uh, evil being on the march and, and where are you going to find help, he, he says this in verse 7, so Psalm 9 verse 7, but the Lord, no matter what's going on with the oppressors, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He's talking about a God who is powerful. That throne throws out mandates of mercy, throws out declarations of grace, throws out laws of justice and righteousness. He reigns on the throne. So no matter how powerful you think the oppressors are, David, Solomon's dad says, don't forget there's a God over them. They are puppets in comparison to the powerful nature of our God and King, who in verse eight says he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Verse nine, the Lord is a stronghold, it says. That's a, that's a fortress, right? A mighty fortress is our God, right? The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold when? In times of trouble. For those who? Who know your name and put their trust in you. For you, O oh Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So if you are depressed, if you are oppressed, and you're saying, where's the power? Where's life going to be found? It's found in the Lord. And so nothing formed against you will prevail because there's a God who is powerful. There is a place you can run to, and it ain't Idaho. It's the stronghold of the Lord. He keeps the oppressed. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He has not forsaken us. And so I just want us to have some good news because, guys, I read those verses and I just want to sit down, maybe cry a little, get a nice blanket, and just sip tea and watch the world crumble. But if we have hope, if we remember who the king is, where power really is, then it can give us purpose even in the midst of our suffering. And yet we forget that so easily. In these next verses, we kind of see what it looks like when we forget God's goodness, when we forget that there's a God who's powerful. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes. Verses four through six, this is how we respond. Because guys, we are not alone. God's power should bring us comfort when we feel oppression. But this is how we typically respond. Verses four through six says this. And then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is a vanity or, or vapor, meaningless, and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. We'll talk about that. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. So when we are in places of sorrow, when we are in places of oppression, we're places of isolation, we begin to respond in one of two ditches, if you will. And those two ditches are this. Number one, self-promotion. Number two, self-destruction. And we're going to see where both of those go here. Number one, self-promotion. When we're alone and separate, right, you're isolated, you're cut off, then you begin to strive to, if I'm going to be separated from everybody else, then, then I want to be separate and above, right? I'm not like those people over here. 
I'm unique, I'm a champion, right? So you just wanna be the best. I want, I want to do well. It talks about all of the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. He says, well, I'm going to compare myself to everybody else, and, and if I'm going to be alone, I'm going to be on top. And, and, and right, we, we see this. We, we know this, right? Watch any 30 for 30 on ESPN on, like, great athletes, and it's rarely like, I grew up um, really just well cared for. My dad was really emotionally intelligent. He never condemned me or anything, right? You know, and, and, and then I just became an amazing athlete because of all the drive and passion I had from just being really loved well. Mom and dad always gave me hugs. No, right? It's always like, anyway, dad said if I didn't do this, we're gonna lose our house. And, and you know, I invested all this money in you and so you better make something of yourself. Tiger Woods, right? You know the Tiger Woods story? That's part of it. And, and he said, but no, but it, it produces stuff, right? All the toil and skill and work come of a man's envy of his neighbor. Like, like there is an angst that can kind of come out, right? Of like artistic greatness, right? Nobody's like well-adjusted living in Medina and is like, you know what? Grunge music. I need to make some of that. No, where does it come from? It comes from growing up in Aberdeen. It, it's sad. It's depressing. It's angsty. I'm going to move into Seattle and I'm going to throw down the Nevermind album. And music has never been the same since. Right? That, that striving that Kurt Cobain had is because of pain. It's because of suffering. Um, it happens politically as well. Um, my, my grandfather actually went to college with, um, uh, with a guy named Richard Nixon. He was president for a while, for those of you that used to study American history. Um, we don't do that anymore. Um, oh boy, gotta get in trouble. So he was a president of the United States for a while, but he grew up rejected in high school and college. He, he actually didn't win class president. He wasn't starter on the football team, and that angst drove him to become president. Curry! But it wasn't enough you know how his story ends, right? So, so we get this, that this angst can drive us a, a little bit, and, and, and we know this personally, right? Like, I go running sometimes when I run by myself. I run slow. When I run with others, I run a little bit faster, right? Okay, hey, we're better together. You know when, when we run the fastest? When you're running against someone, right? Or you're being chased by a cheetah. Either way, right? Those are the two times, right? But, but there's this fear, and, and so there's this competition, and competition's not always wrong, but it can get very unhealthy when it's driven by envy, and it becomes all-consuming, leading to greater division and, and fragmentation, and, and constant comparison of others leads to unhealthy competition with others, and the Bible just says that's foolish, Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we looked at 2 Corinthians in the spring, he says this, he said, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Another way of saying that is comparison is foolishness. And so that's why we say if, if you want to just kill something, compare it to something. You want to be robbed of joy? Start comparing. Start looking around. Oh, it's always better here. It's better there, right? Okay, so that's, that's the self-promotion, right? That's going to drive it. Here's the other one. Self-destruction, number two. When we are alone, we either easily amp up or give up. And they become all-consuming. 
right? Sometimes you respond by separation, by running harder. Other times you respond by, by just dropping out of the race altogether, right? Like, what does it even matter? Like, okay, I, I'm separated, I'm alone, I'm isolated. Why even try? I can see they're already that far ahead of me. Like, I, I've, I'm at this point in my life, I couldn't go back to school. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't, like, have another relationship and have that lead to flourishing. I couldn't reinvest where I am. I couldn't change careers. I couldn't, I, I couldn't move to another place, right? You're like, no, I'm just, I'm just done. And, and it leads to just dropping out of the rat race entirely, right? Because you've gone from unhealthy competition to shameful complacency. This term here in verse five, folding of the hands, it's, it's used throughout Proverbs, uh, Solomon uses it there to talk about laziness. It's when work isn't an idol for you that you're worshiping because you're a workaholic. It's work and purpose are now, I'm idle. I'm just gonna not do anything. If I can't keep up with the Joneses, why even try, right? And in fact, maybe, maybe I'll just try to advocate for a system where I don't even have to work at all because I don't, I don't like working. And, and Proverbs says it this way, Proverbs 6, 10, 11, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And so rather than an all-consuming drive, you have a self-consuming sloth. We've talked about this in our men's study. We've talked about this here in Ecclesiastes. Right? You're not made specifically and solely to work, but part of how God has made us is to work, is to have purpose and meaning, whether that's in parenting and being involved in your community, in serving, in, in, in working a job that pays a wage. Like, like we're made to produce and when we don't, we get robbed of dignity. And, and it seems like it's a good idea for a while because who doesn't want a little leisure, right? It's okay to rest. That's why we need rhythms of rest. You need rhythms to recharge. You need time for vacation. But what we're watching right now in our country is a real-time consequences of what happens when a society devalues work. And we say, hey, we're just gonna pay you to stay home. Don't work, don't do anything. Amazon, it'll all show up on time. Amazon Prime, one day. Okay, now two days. Now three days. Well, Amazon Prime is now like way out on the port of Los Angeles and a ship just stuck in the supply chain. It's not moving. Because we're just saying, no, no, just, just a little rest, just a little more leisure. Wouldn't it be great if you never had to work again ever? And then we wonder why like, there's not as much toilet paper in the store anymore because nobody's making toilet paper because nobody's driving a truck to bring the toilet paper to the store anymore because they can get paid more to stay home. And so you're watching, again, in real time. Guys, I, you're like, he's nerding out on economics, really? Yeah, because economics is God's plan for flourishing for people. Like, is he talking politics? Yeah, because politics leads to policies and policies impact people and God loves people. And he wants to see them flourish. And so when you have a society that just says, oh, you don't need to work anymore. You get warnings in October about Christmas being canceled because there's no presents. Guys, Jesus already showed up. Christmas is never gonna be canceled ever. Okay, amen? All right, just no toys this year. Sorry, kids. <laughs> wow. 
Maybe this is where they came up with the fruitcakes. Maybe this was something that happened in the 20s when there was nothing left. They're like, hey, we'll just throw all that stuff together. Hey, I, I got like a bottle top on mine, Dad. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's the texture. Okay. So what happens, right, when we begin to diminish the value of work, right, and, and, and you just fall into these uh, uh, cycles, when God says, like, you're not supposed to be all consumed with work, you're also not supposed to be complacent, we're actually supposed to, verse six says, called to a life of contentment. And one even, dare I say, of abundance. In fact, I don't, I don't have any problem saying that at all because Jesus says, I came to bring life and bring life that is abundant. Life that is full. And so, we're not called to have nothing but to be content with what we have. And Proverbs 23, 4 says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. And so he says in verse six, right? Like, hey, better to just have a handful. Like, you got enough. It's a full hand. And some peace, some quietness. Then they have, all right, I got all this stuff, but man, I'm stressed out about it. Right? You get more payments. You need to get more stuff coming in. You, 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 you buy a second house, you do all those things, right? Oh man, right? more liabilities. Is it better to just have a handful and be content than have two handfuls and be exhausted? Where are we gonna find contentment? Where are we, guys, because we just, we're not gonna find it if we keep going it alone. So th- those are the two worldly responses, either self-promotion or self-destruction, either through, through um, all-consuming work or self-consuming sloth, where at a certain point, if all you're doing is consuming, he says, you're gonna eat your own flesh. The cupboards are gonna get bare at the stores if nobody works. We need some hope. Here we go, verses seven through 12. Things start to get a bit better here. Bef- get worse first, all right. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, they're alone. Either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is a vanity and an unhappy business or another way of saying it, evil work. Verse nine, the light starts to shine, guys. Two are better than one because they have a great reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so here, here's the one guy who's really busy, but he's alone. And so he, he's a workaholic. He's got no relationships. He is crushing it. He's super successful, but he's got no one to hand it off to. He's got no one to enjoy it with. I, I know a guy who started a couple businesses, sold one, started another, and, and no, no marriage, no relationships. And, and it's like the guy produces. Man, does he produce? But he's alone. And he's so focused on accumulating wealth, the guy here in Ecclesiastes, that, that nobody ever asks him like, hey, why are you doing this? What are, you, what are you hoping? Like, we all know we can't take it with us, right? Like, when's enough gonna be enough for you? Like, are you, are you enjoying what you're doing? And so the work becomes so extreme for him that that's, we're, we're, we've now gone from being idle in work to just idolizing it. 
worshiping. It becomes all-consuming. And so we have to have a proper perspective because when we're alone, we'll either have hyper-competitive rivalry, talked about that, disconnected dropping out, or single striving. And none of that leads to joy. Right? I mean, this is a guy who's alone. And when, when Solomon says he's alone, he's like, this is, this is an unhappy business. This is vanity under the sun. The Bible begins, and, and when God made everything, and he said it's all what? He said it's all good. Except he makes man, and he puts him in the garden. And Genesis 2.18 says, the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. We are made to be in relationship with one another. And while there's times for silence and solitude, Jesus takes time for silence and solitude, we are wired to only function and flourish if and when we are in community with one another. And we all intrinsically know this. And the reason I know we all know this is if you've ever watched the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks, nobody's ever said, I want that. Okay, maybe if you're a mom with a bunch of young kids, you're like, yes, right? Those first couple weeks are great. But how does it end, right? He's talking to a volleyball with his bloody handprint on it. Again, mental health, not great. We're made for relationship with one another. We need purpose, we need relationship. And so, the, like we're not made to be alone and so more wealth and more toil isn't necessarily better but here really really clearly in verse 9 it says more people is better so clear two are better than one like hey this is great we're all here it's awesome that you're with us online but more people is better a bigger stronger more robust community is better the Lord says like, we can invite people to gather. We can tell people about Jesus. We can have people to our homes. And you're like, well, I, I feel like I've heard these verses before, right? Uh, because it seems like, oh, no, you usually hear these in, in weddings, right? They always talk about this with a bride and a groom, right? But what it's actually talking about, yes, it can be used in that context. I've used it in that context as a pastor. But what he's talking about is what we call gospel community, or when we say mercy, fellowship. That relationship that's brought together for a purpose. And so this is a description of life together. And when we say, well, I don't, I don't know if I want to meet any more people. I, I like being alone. Like, I just need to tell you, that is a red flag of pain or trauma when you're at the place where you're like, I don't want to meet anybody ever again. And I've been there. And I know. There are times where relationally you're like, I'm just too hurt. I don't want to deal with anybody else anymore. And maybe you've been there. But the answer isn't isolation. It's lovingly pursuing gospel community that's, that, that's safe, that's life-giving. And, and the picture of that is here as, as we go on. Verses, or these verses lay out four principles for gospel community, for, for fellowship. Number one, when we are together, our work is rewarding. When we're together, our work is rewarding. Earlier, right, uh, in these verses, he says that all that work is an evil uh, business, an unhappy business. Well, here, uh, he says in verse nine, two are better than one because they have not an unhappy business, but instead a good reward for their toil. 
So even in the midst of toil, even in the midst of difficult work, at least I got somebody working with me. Right? Anyone just done a, a crappy job that's just hard and difficult? But at least if you got somebody with you, it's like, at least it's kind of fun. Or at least you can encourage one another. It says, no, th- then the, there's, there's not just like you're going to make it, but there's a good reward in the toil. Number two, when we're together, we're picked up when we fall. Galatians chapter six has this awesome verses uh, around brotherhood. And it talks about the difference between a burden and a load. A load is what it, one soldier in Rome was, was able to carry. It says everyone's supposed to carry their load, right? We're all supposed to do our part. But a burden was something so heavy that one man could not lift it on his own. And so here it's saying, hey, when, when, when you're together, you can be picked up when you fall. There are moments in my life where the burden of ministry was too heavy for me to carry alone. And there were people around me that just picked me up and just carried me and drug me through it. And I praise God for that. And there's moments that are going to happen in your marriage. There's moments that we're going to have together as we continue to navigate the world in front of us that we're just going to get beat down. And we're going to need one another to carry one another. He says, that happens when you're together. Because otherwise, he says, when you fall in a pit on your own, you're just done. Right? This is an old reference, but anybody watch television uh, in like the early 2000s during the day? And there's that old lady, and she has fallen, and she what? Can't get up. Okay, y'all watched it. All right. And like, okay, cool. Well, you get the little beep, 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 you know, the life alert bracelets. You know, I've fallen and I can't get up. Like, when you're alone, that's it. You get the life alert bracelet. We need more than that. We need better than that. The answer for that old lady and the answer for us is not a, a life alert bracelet, but it's community to not actually be alone. Number three, when we're together, we can comfort one another. We're in a world that's apart from God. We are decidedly outside of Eden. And that means that life is harsh, life is cold, life is difficult, we're gonna get tired. And when we're alone, you can't even rest, right? If you, because you know, your teeth are clattering, like, like I, I'm just exposed to the elements of the world. I just feel like I'm getting knocked around. I can't fall asleep. I can't rest with all of this. But true fellowship, gospel community, it warms and comforts our lives in ways that allow us to, to have rest in, even when we're weary together, finding enjoyment in one another. It says there's a mutual benefit. It's not just, hey, I'm cold. I need that body to warm me. It says they are warmed. We are better together. We can encourage and comfort one another better together. Number four, when we're together, we can protect one another. Right? We're out in the elements. Like there's a reference here to an enemy, if you will, right? And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two can withstand him. It, it's like, hey, you, the idea was you're out on a road. You're in between towns. And like there's a robber who could come and get you. You're by yourself. Sorry, you're losing your iPhone. Together, two, maybe they're not going to mess with you. And, and, and 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. How do apex predators hunt? They take out the weak. They don't go after the herd. They go after the herd, see where the herd goes, and then who doesn't stay with the herd? 
And so we, get, we have this idea, right, that, that, well, you know, maybe I don't, we don't need to all run together. I just need to be faster than the slowest gazelle. Well, no, because if we're part of a real fellowship, then we don't want to see anybody get picked off. And so we stay together. We're stronger together. And what's interesting about all of this is Solomon as a preacher doesn't say, well, anyway, when you're cold or when you're in an emergency, when you fall in a pit, when you got somebody coming after you, call 911 and just sit and wait. No. He says you need to already be in a place of community and safety. Because if you're waiting for rescue from outside, it might be too late. And this is where I want us to have this understanding because some of us face, face trials and difficulties, right? We got health issues, we're losing our jobs, we're, we're freaking out, all these different things, and, and, and we're feeling alone and isolated and we're ready to get picked off. And that's because we haven't been together or pressed into community all the time. And so I want us to you know this, fellowship or gospel community it can only be effective in the hard times if it's present all the time. So if you're at your lowest right now, I am so glad you're here. We are here for you. This is that place of refuge. The Lord says, come, gather, hear God's word. Let's be strengthened. Let's grow together. But if you're doing fine, praise God, maybe you're there to comfort somebody else, but we need to continue to press deep into community for when it gets harder. Because if it's not present in all the times, it's not gonna be present in the hard times. See, we're called to interdependence with one another, right? He, he says that the outcome of a fellowship that's like this is one that includes profit, resilience, comfort, and strength. Guys, those are all good things. So this is a call for us as a church right now today to press into community, press into fellowship more than you have before. And so I don't know what that looks like for you. Like maybe it's to, to join a fellowship group for the first time. Like it's, it's, it says here that right, they're gonna work together. They're gonna walk together. They're gonna encourage one another. They're gonna comfort one another. They're gonna protect one another. So that means that, that this fellowship, it's for you and you are for it. And, and this fellowship here, Mercy Fellowship, this church, is only going to be as strong as how much each of us individually are pressing in to this fellowship with both relationships and responsibilities. And so that means we need to be a people who are committed to gathering, who are committed to giving, cheerfully, regularly, sacrificially, who are committed to growing, to pressing into God's word, to seeking opportunities to grow and, and committed to going on mission, serving here in the church and loving our neighbor as ourselves outside of it. Otherwise, we're just a bunch of isolated cells. It only takes one attack or two attacks to come in and scatter everybody. This is the point in, in the wedding sermon, right? Where they take the little cords, you know, and he gets the little scissors and he lets you know it's not okay to be alone, right? And he takes one cord and, and, he, and he cuts the cord, right? He said, look, you on your own, easy to cut. And he takes two and he's like, yep, look, I can cut. And then, and then he, he takes the three together, right? And he takes the scissors. Look, it can't be cut. It's like, yeah, that's because you use the scissors from the kids' classrooms. They're the safety scissors, right? 
And, and, and so like the idea is, yeah, we're better together. We're stronger. But even here in these verses, it says in verse 12, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. It doesn't say it's unbreakable. It just takes a little bit more. And so we get the idea that, that alone we're weak. We is, is better, right? But we need something like, like the, the reason we've said that this week, that this sermon is called unbreakable is because it, it doesn't matter if it's just us as a community together and we're stronger. If we are all that's holding us together, we need to have a cord that binds us together, that runs through us, and no matter how strong the scissors are, maybe you got the real, actual, like, sewing scissors, you know, that, like, can slice a finger off scissors. You need something that, it can't make it through three cords. You need that third cord to just be like titanium steel. Is that a thing? I don't know. It needs to be unbreakable. Because, like, for Tara and I in our marriage, there are times that I'm up and she's down. There's times she's down and I'm up. And the scariest times are when we're both down. And maybe you've been in those places. The only way we make it through anything is if there's a cord stronger than just one more person. We need a cord that's actually unbreakable. And that's why what holds us together in this fellowship, in this community, is the gospel. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is stronger than we are. So we can tie ourselves up together and we can be, be as strong as we can. But if Jesus isn't here, good luck. But if Jesus is here, if the Holy Spirit's here in us and through us, if our reliance is yes on each other, but on each other constantly pointing us up to Jesus, Oh man, we stand a chance, more than we stand a chance. In fact, actually, we have a great promise because Colossians 1.17, talking about Jesus, says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is that unbreakable cord that holds us all together. And so while the world around us looks like it's falling apart, we get to rest in a better king. We get to rest in a better kingdom. Last verses and then we're done, guys. Uh, as he ends this chapter, Solomon kind of takes this turn beyond just fellowship together to saying, hey, there's a way the world's working and it ain't working. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king, let's go, who no longer knew how to take advice. <laughs> For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he'd been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun uh, along with that youth who was then to stand in the king's place. And there was no end to the people of all whom led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely also this is a vanity and striving after the wind. So Solomon right here is describing a kingdom that's falling apart because of poor leadership from the king. And he's saying... Everybody's like, oh my gosh, this, this guy's not even listening to anybody anymore. He's way past his prime. Hey, hey, here's a young guy. He'll lead us to the promised land. He'll lead us to a better place. And so they put that guy up. And he says, and the cycle just continues. And the kingdom just gets more and more broken. Guys, that's, our hope is not going to be in earthly kings. It needs to be in something greater than just political change. 
or greater than just full shelves at Costco. We need to have our hope placed in a kingdom that is unbreakable and is unshakable. And that means we need to keep our eyes on and our allegiance to a different king than this world has. See, we have a better king in Jesus. And anytime we are frustrated with the brokenness of the kingdom around us, we should long for that better unbreakable kingdom. Because Jesus is better than this king. I mean, rather than going from prison to the throne, in Jesus, we see a king who went from the throne of heaven to being arrested, to being executed and putting in the prison of a tomb. And, and, and where this king in Ecclesiastes goes from rags to riches, in Jesus, we see a king who it says, gave up all the riches of heaven and was covered with the rags of our sin and unrighteousness when he went to the cross for us. Jesus has bared it all for us. Jesus has actually been broken for us so that we can rely on him as being unbreakable. So when we take communion here, we remember that Jesus had his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. But that's not the end of the story. Because where this king in Ecclesiastes goes through this cycle of ascending a great hill and then watching his influence diminish, in Jesus, we have a king who was carried up, or climbed up a hill, was placed on a cross, went back down into a tomb, buried three days, dead, end of story. Influence over. Jesus is done until there's good news. The stone has been rolled away. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. Jesus has ascended into heaven and is ruling and reigning over everything. And he has an influence. For the last 2,000 years, we've gone from 12 guys who weren't that great, small church of 120, kind of scared, held up in a room, worried about the culture around them, to a couple billion people around the world over the last 2,000 years. That's a kingdom with no end. That's an influence who has grown. Jesus is more influential in the world today than he was on the day he was buried. More people worship, follow, and have their allegiance to Jesus now than did then. So we have our hope in a king who though was put into a grave has risen and is ruling for eternity. And so guys, there's gonna be trials and challenges ahead. There's gonna be times where you feel isolated and separated. There's gonna be times where you feel powerless and oppressed. But none of us need to fear or have despair because none of us are ever alone when we're held together by a king who's unbreakable. And so we go on together as a fellowship that's defined by the fact that we trust Jesus. Let's pray.